0: Now, though, we are going across to the United States um, to speak with Elise Hugh, because what are the dangers for society when a perfect face and body, especially for women, are not just promoted, but are also possible, whether it's a 10 step skincare regime, cosmetic injections or plastic surgery? Endless self-improvement has been valorized and recoded as empowerment. And the pioneer of all of this is South Korea. My next guest is NPR's host at large and the presenter of TED Talks Daily, Elise Hu. She lived and worked in Seoul. And over that time, the global K-beauty industry quadrupled. Today, it's worth 10 billion US dollars. 10 billion. Her new book is Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. And she is with us live on Saturday morning. Kia ora, Elise. Thanks for being with us
1: today. I'm delighted to be here. Hi, Susie. Uh,
0: really interesting book, um, which goes into all manner of territories. What was it that mm-hmm. you were wanting to explore? What was the point that you thought, Ah, I think there's a book in here?
1: Well, ostensibly, it is a book about how we got here, the global rise of Korean beauty as expressed through skincare, cosmetics, and also all of these surgeries. South Korea is the plastic surgery capital of the world. No other country comes close. And so at first, I just wanted to ask a simple question, sort of how did this globally relevant industry get so big in the first place, especially from a country that's relatively small? But then as I began researching it and the more time I spent living in South Korea, the more I think the book ended up being more about kind of consent. And what I mean by that is whether we really have a choice in how we modify our bodies, what we put on our bodies, how we change our bodies in a world that is so consumer driven and so capitalistic. That's
0: interesting because the there's the real concept, I suppose, that appearance is supreme, that comes across in the book. And that in itself is, Absolutely. Is, is a pretty kind of, it's a pretty complicated, but also a very reductive way of looking at things.
1: Yeah, South Korea was really interesting. It was the first place that I felt the gender disparity so great. You know, I come from the United States, grew up in the United States where um, I felt, you know, race and the differences between various ethnic backgrounds very strongly. But South Korea is the first place I lived where I really felt the differences between being, you know, a feminine presenting woman versus a man. You know, I felt like South Korea was a place in which I my place as a woman had to be earned (laughs) rather than assumed. And then there were so many expectations placed on women in terms of not only how we looked, but also how we behaved. Um, South Korea is where I learned about the concept of lookism and that is appearance-based discrimination. So add on top of all the rest of the isms, racism, sexism, look um, Great, another one's just and, what we need. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but any of us who have ever been made fun of on the playground because our, our hair was too frizzy or because we had mosquito bites on our legs or because we were too big or too small, all of us have Experience lookism in one way or the other. What was different about South Korea was the way that lookism was really embedded into a lot of its economy. Um, It's a place where photos, headshots were often required on resumes, where your ID photo, like for passports or visas, were photoshopped by default. So there really was an expectation that you looked better than you naturally look and that you do the work to try and look better. Our appearance, our external appearance was framed as a a matter of personal responsibility.
0: Mm. Tell me a little bit about, you've touched on it, but tell me a bit about the technological gaze.
1: Yes, well, it's really interesting. And well, we're all used to the idea of the male gaze, right? The idea that women have to perform for the perspective of men. But more and more, all of us, especially in a digital society, especially in a world where social media is driven by algorithms, we are having to perform to a technological, an artificial, a machine-driven gaze in which filters, for example, show us ideals for what beauty is. And filters actually show us ideals for what we can look like, how we can look better. You know, it'll smooth our skin or make our lips bigger or make our faces thinner. And then there opens up a gap between the way that we look digitally and then the way our meat space selves look in the mirror. And we end up chasing that digital representation of ourselves. And the technological gaze then kind of becomes this narcissistic, self-perpetuating gaze in which we are letting the digital world dictate real world beauty standards. And I think that can be really dangerous, especially in this time in which another form of technology, biomedical technology, is making it easier to improve our bodies um, if we have the money to spend to Mm. do it. That's interesting to
0: a lot of people, I would imagine, who will have come across this, especially on things like Instagram, the filters that are available. But for people who are sort of sitting at home thinking, oh, this... This doesn't really affect me. It kind of does though, because especially uh, things like Zoom also have these filters available. And exactly. been a when you talk about Zoom face, you know after we were all having meetings on Zoom, people decided that maybe they needed a bit of a, a nip or a tuck or a Botox or a whatever because they were looking at themselves effectively in the mirror in their cab- in their camera for huge chunks of the day.
1: Zoom face is the technological gaze at work. You know, you are seeing the digital representation of yourself so much that it is dictating how we are, how we are wanting to look in real life. And I, I think that what's so insidious about it is that it is not just limited to women. It's not just limited to a certain age demographic. Um, it increases the pressure on all of us because all of us are in a more visual society. So we're seeing more and more um, come across our screens every day, but also we see ourselves on screens more and more every day. So I don't think that we can really escape it if we live um, in modern times and are connected to the Internet, just because the Internet, by its very definition, is so visual. Mm.
0: But this, of course, can drive all manner of things like fear or shame, but also conformity. Tell me about
1: how that plays out in Korea. Absolutely. There's this pressure, of course, and I think this is true for Korea, but true for all of us, um, that we do try and fit into society's understanding of success, whatever that success is. And in South Korea, there is a really exacting idea of what beauty should represent you know for women it's, it tends to be very very thin it's a thinness that is uh, that i had not encountered anywhere else uh, and long luscious hair and perfect poreless skin and that skin also can't be too dark and uh and when you have these kinds of ideals that are so specific it is incredibly marginalizing for anyone who can't fit in even though even if not being able to fit in is really not your fault. We Human beings are diverse. It is part of the human experience to have many of us look various ways and have have worthiness that extends far beyond our appearance. Except when you were saying, you need to look these particular, um, fit these particular, particular norms and standards, then you're marginalizing everybody who can't fit in, but you're also increasing the pressure on everybody who can, right? So if you are doing the work or paying the money or getting the Botox or um, restricting your diet, restricting your body in a way to fit in and fit these norms, you're also, as you get older, constantly having to intervene more and more, spend more money or time and energy in order to keep up, and so it's bad for everybody in society. It's bad for those who can't fit in, and it's bad for those who can can kind of fit in because you're constantly having to do the work. And one of the big themes of Flawless is that aesthetic labor mm. is labor too. It's another shift. Uh, we don't properly take into account the amount of time and energy and resources it takes to research hair places to figure out and book appointments to take the time to go and get you know whatever services we're getting whether it's facials or hair dyeing or lash extensions or getting memberships at this gym or going to the gym all of this is a lot of work and it's um, part of keeping up with a larger beauty culture uh, that that we ought to question and this beauty labor essentially has also
0: been mm-hmm. repackaged certainly to women as self-care as something you can do you yeah. know, for yourself and also often presented in a way that it's a choice but also right. with these societal pressures kind of not a choice.
1: Yeah yeah and that's why I said that Flawless is ostensibly a book about products and procedures and global beauty, but it's also a book about consent, because how much consent do we give, and how much choice do we really have? Um, Beauty culture is complicated. We do find a lot of joy in glitter and makeup and dressing up, and I do love the touch of beauty workers. I love going to get my nails done or to do that with one of my little girls. I have three daughters, ages six and eight and eleven, and there are things that we like to do together that can be very bonding that is part of beauty culture. And so while it it can be individually beneficial to take care of our bodies and to appreciate one side of the beauty culture coin, it can also be collectively harmful if we're putting let's say Ozempic or injectables or Pilates memberships out of the reach of everyone because Ultimately, I believe that everybody deserves to have worthiness and then everybody also deserves to be loved. Your time in Korea,
0: um, especially with your little daughters growing up, what, mm-hmm. what sort of experiences, what kind of examples, I suppose, can you give us about how you experienced life there and how,
1: how much you, I suppose, fit in or didn't? Well, I didn't in terms of my size. Um, This was the first time South Korea has uh, like a 50 kilogram weight norm for women. And um, which I think is the equivalent of something like 115 pounds. And uh, so it was the first time in my life where I would go to stores and they would say to me, um, I'm very straight-sized in the United States, uh, but I would was in Korea was the first time I would go into stores and they would say to me, "Oh, we don't have any clothes that fit you because we are free size." And free size was also a new concept to me. Free size is the equivalent to a U.S. size two, and there were no other sizes available. So it was the first time where I experienced fat phobia—the sense that you know I couldn't fit in—and um, what that was like, and. You know, it was really rather astounding some of the comments that were made to my daughters, too. My, my eldest daughter was only four or five years old by the time we left. So when she was in preschool, there were other moms who had asked if I had gotten her eyelash extension. Because it was sort of considered normal that that little girls would even have to do some sort of aesthetic labor. So th- these, these experiences seemed absurd or sort of funny, but also... Um, really informed me and made me feel this gnawing sense, oh, we should look farther into, or we could, we should look deeper into this and become some of the questions that then led to the book that became Flawless.
0: Free size is an interesting name when you only have one size and it's very small.
1: (laughs) Yes, there's a chapter of the book called Free Size Isn't Free. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, I'm interested to,
0: you mentioned that aesthetic that is so sought after and the skin not only being poreless but also very pale where mm-hmm. does that come from? Yeah. Is that connected to uh, a, you know a colonialism or that sort of overhang or is that from something
1: else? So globally it is connected to colonialism especially in places like South Africa for example um, and, and India uh, Southeast Asia but in Northeast Asia, it comes from largely history. Uh, even during the dynastic times, a very pale porcelain appearance was sought after as a matter of class, because it was only the aristocrats that could really have very, very pale skin. Cause that meant they weren't out in the fields working in the sun. They were protected and they were indoors. And so A lot of Korean beauty standards that focus on sort of looking natural and not looking too overdone actually do have roots in the Chosun dynasty, which was the final dynasty in Korea that lasted hundreds of years. In which, you know, it was very Confucian based. And the idea was that you showed respect to your elders by not cutting your hair and in some cases not cutting your nails as sort of... um, you know, filial piety, but then also because there were class distinctions, the highest classes af- could afford to not be out in the fields and live an agrarian lifestyle. And as a result, that seeking of appearing of higher class then led to seeking that whiter, paler appearance.
0: Mm. You're listening to Saturday Morning on RNZ National with Susie Ferguson. I'm talking with Elise Hugh whose new book is Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. I'm interested, Elise, in what this democratisation, if that indeed is the right word, of all of these cosmetic procedures is. Because there is a place of class in beauty. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so in some ways, having access fairly easily and relatively cheaply to all of these... Um, enhancements that can be done is divisive, but it's
1: also a democratising process, isn't it? That's a really important point to make because South Korea, as I mentioned, is the cosmetic surgery capital of the world because so many people seek cosmetic surgery there not just domestically but from abroad and one of the reasons why there is so much medical tourism to places like Seoul the capital of South Korea is because of the prices you can get procedures like uh, the double eyelid surgery that many uh, those who many Asian people who are not born with the eyelid fold, they'll they'll go and get that in South Korea, at a fraction of what it costs in the United States. You can get all sorts of injectables, Botox and fillers and the like, for also, you know, 25% of what it might cost in Beverly Hills in Los Angeles, where I live now. So there is something to the fact that more and more people can have access to this. But my response to that is that it's still not everyone that can have access. And Costing any sort of money at all, these procedures um, costing any sort of money money at all and then becoming sort of attractive for people to get. And in some cases, becoming a standard or a norm that those who are job seeking, for example, are expected to adhere to mean that there is a lower class that is constantly having to chase something that might be out of their reach, not just financially, but time wise. Um, or labor-wise. And so I don't think that just because it's cheaper uh, means that this is this kind of beauty culture shouldn't be either questioned or resisted. How much is it a choice
0: if there is such an ideal and it is so prized?
1: Yeah, that's a really important question. And, And I know, Susie, you've already read the book, but so many women, I spoke to hundreds of Korean women for this book, ranging from ages seven to in their late 70s. And one theme that came up again and again was this notion of choice, but not a choice. That we are often presented, especially as women, of these consumer choices or or, or things to do to our bodies or ways to modify ourselves as, oh, this is a choice. You know, you can do this or that. But is it really when we're living in a system that demands it, Um, when we're living in a system in which your success in the dating market, your success in the job market is dependent on your appearance and how you look externally. And so a lot of these women were saying, you know, I, I could have opted out, right. I could have shaved my head. I could have not worn makeup, but then I would be, uninvited to my family gatherings and I wouldn't have a sense of belonging in my own family or I'd have a much harder time getting a job in any public facing job so if I wanted to work at a cafe if I wanted to work in retail that wouldn't pass muster that I didn't have long hair it wouldn't pass muster that I was overweight because there of this sense that not only do you have to adhere to a certain appearance norm but you have to be appearing as if you're doing the work to look better Hmm. because of this notion that that hard work equals hard work on your body too (laughs) and i think that is where where we're really getting off track in society right that uh, that our worthiness and our appearance are so conflated and we really have to do the work to break the link between the fact that we all have value (laughs) and that we all look very differently um and the more and more worthiness and uh appearance get linked together The more and more it is dangerous and marginalising for everybody who is left out.
0: Mm. Uh, I want to ask you a little bit about pushback here, but someone has texted into us on 2101 here at RNZ National saying, what is it about looking older that frightens us? Why do we colour our hair, hide wrinkles, shave our heads, stand tall, be proud, this is me? I'm a survivor, this person says. You might also be one day. But it's a really good point. What is it about youth that is so desirable and looking older is something that people are so scared of?
1: Yeah, this is cultural, right? I feel like for as long as, um, gosh, I mean, I looked into some diaries of, some diaries of young girls from hundreds of years ago and there was this sense of, of youth being prized, the sense that everything is in front of us rather than behind us. But the more and more we're in this visual society, youth ends up being, more and more embedded as a deeper pillar of beauty. So one thing that one finding that I found is that there's four global pillars of beauty. So no matter where you are on earth, there are kind of four directions in which beauty standards are going. And that's thinness, firmness, smoothness, and as your caller or your texture properly recognized youth. So And I don't mean necessarily everybody needs to look like they're 12 years old, but there seems to be across, especially the developed world, the sense that even if you're getting into your 50s or your 60s, we're supposed to be frozen in time looking somewhere between the ages of 18 and 35. (laughs) I don't know (laughs) if you experience this in New Zealand, too. Susie, but this sense that like, oh gosh, even the older you get, the more interventions that, that that need to happen in order to stay and we've seen these examples in people like Madonna, for mm. example. Um, mm. and, and and then the recoiling of that also. So so I do think these are culturally prescribed. Um, there's a number of reasons why youth has, has always been prized, newness, of course, being one of them. But but the reason why youth ends up being so high pressure these days is because of media, the, the saturation of digital culture, the way that we all have to appear on screens so much. Um, that has conflated beauty and the sense of goodness and morality uh, in a way that before photography, for example, didn't exist.
0: And for so many of us also, um, many of the innovations when it comes to things like skincare, if it starts in Korea, it will come over here. It's got a huge influence mm-hmm. <laughs> on the rest of the world, doesn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. We should have said this, at, or I should have mentioned this at the outset. So, so much of skincare culture today that, that is that you probably know of or your tween daughters are, are, are participating in have roots in Korea. Mm. So, when we're talking about um, right now on TikTok, there's a really popular... Uh, get ready with me videos that a lot of tweens and teens are participating in and these get ready with me videos include multi-step skincare routines Mm -hmm. and the 10 step uh the 10 step skincare routine that originated out of korean practices of many many steps that include lots of moisturizing and sunscreen the focus on prevention and just having A really beautiful canvas rather than taking on a bunch of makeup on top of our faces. That is also Korean. Sheet masks, the pimple patches, those little stickers that you can put Mm. on blemishes. So much of those norms and those products that we're so used to today are culturally from Korea, if not manufactured and originally uh, made in South Korea. And so this is where I
0: guess we get to it's not the end point, but it's. It's it's one of the steps a bit further down the line is that who is benefiting when women spend all of this time on aesthetic work, on aesthetic labor?
1: Well, industry, of course, Mm. the beauty industry is now it's it is it seems recession proof. You mentioned in the introduction to this segment that the South Korean beauty industry was estimated at ten billion dollars. In a couple of years, it's expected to be fourteen. Mm. And so it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And then it's not just growing larger, it's growing into different demographics. So younger and younger girls are getting involved in skincare. One of the big trends that we're seeing in the United States, for example, is a lot of elementary age girls flooding into the makeup store Sephora. <laughs> and, and and that and kind of running amok in these sephora stores it's also creeping further and further into the demographic of men south korean men spend a, a, an astronomical amount on hair care and skin care and roughly 13 percent of all of the men's skincare products in the world are purchased by south korean men a country that is small enough to fit in the space between los angeles and san francisco and so <laughs> You are watching industry really get to be rewarded and their bottom lines benefited as more and more of us have to spend or feel as though we have to spend on aesthetic labor. Mm. But movements take time and whether, whether resistance to beauty culture can succeed really means uh, it depends on people continuing to question this work. And um, taking into account the consequences as we're talking about today. Yeah.
0: And it's, it's you know, clearly money's being made on this. Um, and it underpins a chunk of the economy in Korea, clearly, with that amount that is being generated. But I guess it's that very difficult. Yeah, different, South Korea. Yeah, it's that very difficult sort of situation where, like you say, many people do enjoy you know, having a hot bath and using a sheet mask or going and having their nails done or whatever it might be. So it's a slippery slope, right? Let's so where do you, how do you buy in but know where to
1: stop? A lot of this is not, I don't want to place this on the individual, right? This isn't, um if you're feeling the burden of having to be part of the beauty culture and sort of unsure, gosh, do I dye my hair? Do I get the Botox? Because it seems like it would be beneficial um, to get my next job or whatever it is. Certainly don't blame yourself. You know, I, as, as the popular hip hop song uh, refrain <laughs> reminds us, don't hate the player, hate the game. You know, We're part of this larger system that we have to question. In the meantime, one thing that I do to check myself, and now I am uh, 41 years old, is sort of to ask when I am deciding on a product, or a procedure, like facials, or, or or eyelash extensions, or whatever it is, uh, I ask myself: Is this ego driven, or is this soul driven? And I think that all of us have the answer to that kind of deep in the emotional engines of who we are, which is: Am I doing this? Am I participating in this particular ritual or routine because I'm looking over my shoulder and feeling competitive and trying to compare myself, or c- keep up the keep up with the joneses or try and, and and compete in one way or the other or am i doing this because it feels good in my body and so often i think exercise is a great example of this are you exercising for aesthetic reasons or are you exercising because it just feels great after a run or after you lift weights or go take a dance class or whatever it is and i think those are that that question of soul driven versus ego driven is one way that we can kind of at least step into ourselves and try and find a a happy balance for ourselves.
0: Mm. It's a really interesting point. Thank you very much for joining us on Saturday morning. That is Elise Hugh there. Her book is Flawless, Lessons in Looks and Culture from the K-Beauty Capital. It's published by Dutton. A really interesting read there. And thank you so much for your time